Welcome back to the arbitration station. Yeah, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones exteriones equal to... Arriba! Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I am Joel Dahlkes Kullborg. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66 serious substance, 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% tears, because it's our last episode of the season. Oh, sad face. (laughs) Where in the world are you, Joel? (laughs) I am in Copenhagen, where in the world are you, Brian? (laughs) We're in the world. Uh, I am in London. I have not moved um, from this country for a bit, actually. So um, I'm still here. And London, Good for you. London you, Disputes Week is coming up, actually. So people will be coming to us. Ah, uh, you should stay there then. I've been seeing the world lately. Oh, not really. Where since have we you last been? spoke. I, I just realized that we, we were in DC together. So <laughs> I, I can't really claim any credit for that. To you, our DC trip was not leaving London for a long time. That was like two weeks ago. Right. To me, to me, it's seeing the world. But I after that, I went to California and then I've been going back and forth between Sweden and Denmark. So not really seeing the world, come to think of it. <laughs> what did you have going on in Sweden? I go to Sweden all the time. Um, I went up to Uppsala to finish off some things, did some teaching, and I also met my family in Gothenburg. Nice. But that's not the appropriate question. The appropriate question is, what did you do in California? Because I was there yes. working for um, for IA Reporter, which we, of course, ought to thank for the last time this season for the generous support of what is now mo- my primary uh, work, basically. Right. Thank you very much. Why don't you give us a little blurb on them? Yeah. Uh, we want to thank them. Our sponsor, Investment Arbitration Reporter, an online service focused on international investment law for more than 10 years, and I think it's actually closer to 12 now. A reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. So did you have any um, updates from your IA Reporter meetings in California? Mm, well, I mean, they were in California, which is interesting because that's also where you're from. And that's I'm right. absolutely not from California. I'm like the opposite of a person from California. So it was an interesting experience. Luke, who, who runs our reporter, is Canadian and lives in California. And he is fish in the water. He's so natural there. P- people are so nice, so annoyingly nice that I that's found right. myself being provoked. Yeah. <laughs> provoked. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you'll love this. But I uh, one night after we had worked, I had some spare time and I bought a book and I was just in the mood for finding a dive bar to sit down and read my book, have mm-hmm. a beer to myself in Venice Beach. And it turned out to be impossible. Because everyone wanted to talk to you? 
Yeah, first of all, you know, you have the hostesses and the waitresses and the bartenders and all the people that basically are transactionally being nice because you pay them tips, so right. they, they have to be nice. It was very hard just finding a place where I could work walk in without having to, to like exchange pleasantries with six different people working at the establishment. In That's question. so funny. That happened Once to me in I did, DC, they... actually. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was waiting for you to check in, and then oh. I went on my computer to work a little bit, and this person like, kept refilling my water and be like, what you working on? And I'm like, wait, no, <laughs> yeah. no. Exactly. Hey, man, what you reading? Yeah. Ooh, How sounds about? difficult. Leave me alone. Um, I picture you in like on the Venice boardwalk with... Um, people in like skimpy bathing suits rollerblading down the boardwalk with like sunglasses and like a boombox over their shoulder and you are in like head to toe like black with like a pipe and like hunched <laughs> shoulders and being like get out of my way <laughs> it was more or less like that but it was good for me to, to be exposed to this kind of um, niceties in the, in the public arena I think right. and the meetings were very good it was useful just hanging out with Luke and, and talking arbitration in a professional context because otherwise obviously we're remotely working most of the time so it was nice being in the same room and we got some good ideas and some uh, enjoyable social time as well you know that's happening a lot more i mean it also happens in the firm context it's like remote working and it's working more and more when you have huge cases and like a lot of people trying to specialize in arbitration across yeah. all of the offices that you get a team that's composed of like three or four different people from different offices and then remote working becomes your new normal um and then you realize when you meet up with someone face to face it's like a lot better yeah it is i've obviously made a a, a big uh, point out of my solitary uh, strands and my personality on this podcast but i also i realize now that there's a point and and from time to time working with people it actually makes you a happier human being right by and large well, um, we have a couple of segments coming up. Do you, um, Joel is going to take the heavy lead, and we're sorry for last week because I have I was just crazy busy, <laughs> and yeah. also it was Easter, and I mean he resurrected, right? We can't. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you should have <laughs> led with that. It was for religious reasons, <laughs> yeah, exactly. not, not anything else. <laughs> it was Passover, so we passed over uh, last week. Yeah. Ooh, Got pun it. number forty-six. Got it. So nice. But this time on today's program is investment legislation, specifically consent to arbitration in investment legislation, um, a, a segment that has been aptly researched for the last time, boohoo, uh, boo by Dmitry Mednikov. Thank you, Dmitry, for all your help. And thank you to Rishi Rahija and Callum Agnew for their help as well. Amen. After that, we will do the book lab, which is uh, not so aptly researched by me, because I have read a book, and I will tell you all about that book. It's <laughs> Dealing in Virtue, a classic from the mid-1990s, a study of the history and sociology of international commercial arbitration that I think is an amazing book, as will become clear. And then we have Happy Fun Time, and as far as I can tell, uh, Part of the reason that we're doing this Happy Fun Time is because you want to show our listeners that you have trainees who work for you at your firm. <laughs> I have minions. No, um, we have two people from Winston here in London. We have a, a current trainee and someone who is newly qualified, so has just gotten an associate position, but had just finished his traineeship here. 
Um, this is very um, unique. Oh. Oh, now we have to make this the final episode. This, I know. That's full circle. Just to put me on a whipping post. Um, very unique. It's unique to the London market or to the UK market. And um, I think they have something to say. We have... Um, Kata, who is Hungarian, who um, is now living in London, but is educated in England as well. Um, and then we have Ali, who's born and raised in the UK. So they maybe they'll give some comparative um, looks into the legal system and the training. And then I will tell them what it's like to, <laughs> to compare that to the US system of someone who just leaves law school. And the same thing in the Swedish system. Leaves law school and walks in your first day at work and expected to know anything about anything. Yeah, that's good. It might also give us a chance to sort of rectify all the mistakes we made when we talked about QCs and other particularity right. with the, the UK system. Now we can actually have some people who are training in the system to talk about it rather than us speculating from the outside. Amen. Well, here we go on our last episode. Last episode of the season, we should say. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, God. Because we are assuming we, we might uh, end up doing a bunch more. We'll see. We haven't really talked about it. I get that question a lot, and I, I enjoy the International Mystery Man air and, <laughs> and tend to say, ah, we'll see. We don't know. No. <laughs> Leave them hanging. Yeah. But now, for the final episode of the third season, we'll talk about investment arbitration legislation and the consent to arbitration in legislation, which is similar but different compared to consent to arbitration in investment treaties. Many national investment laws actually provide for arbitration, and these laws generally have the same goal as many investment treaties, i.e. to encourage private, in, uh, private investors and companies to come to the host state and also to help alleviate their possible fears about the presence of an unstable and unpredictable legal framework for their investments. So you'll see what you typically see in treaties as well, definitions of uh, investment and investor and a bunch of substantive standards of treatment that the whole state undertakes in its own legislation mm -hmm. to grant foreign investors. And this is this is more common than you would think. There's a lot of interesting research going on uh, on this now. So I think we'll see a research output uh, in the near future. I won't give any names because I don't want to put pressure on the academics in question. But this is historically, this has been something that we haven't looked sufficiently at, I think. Uh, and I think that is partly because many of the countries from which most arbitration lawyers come do not have these laws. There's no law on foreign investment in Switzerland or in the United States. But many other states, typically in, uh, in like south and east parts of the world, mm -hmm. they do have these laws. And obviously, we have a, a number of arbitrations based on these. So that's why we're interested in, in this. They look differently, obviously. Uh, states use different formulations when they draft these laws, uh, unlike treaties, which tend to be pretty similar. So there's a lot of interesting differences to explore here uh, there are a few like overlapping issues though most dispute settlement clauses for example refer to making efforts you know to reach an amicable settlement through negotiations and that kind of thing um, and many of them also provide for recourse to arbitration and here is a thing that we are interested in because they tend to be different these clauses 
we have some uh, that just provide for uh, courts, basically, without mentioning arbitration. But then we have those laws that generically refer to international arbitration specifically, but without saying anything more about the arbitration that is envisioned. For example, Estonia, Indonesia, and Azerbaijan have laws basically assuming that the parties will have to agree to what kind of international arbitration they want. And then there's this, I mean, typically you want laws to be clear. That's the point <laughs> with with legislation. Yeah. But some of these are pretty interesting and uh, you could see creative lawyers argue different ways. For example, there's a bunch of uh, investment laws that simply remind of the fact that bilateral or multilateral treaties exist to which the host state is a party and that these treaties may provide for arbitration. Dimitri has found the laws from Algeria, Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, Guatemala, and Kazakhstan as examples of this kind of like, hmm, there's this thing called arbitration. We may have consented to arbitration in other, in other contexts. Good luck with that. That seems like very, very strong legislation there. Yeah, and if, if you want to rely on them, you have, of course, the challenge to argue that this means that the state has actually consented in in the law. But you have other laws where it's more clear that the state has, in fact, consented specifically to exit arbitration, which is what we usually see here. And just as a historical parenthesis, I'm, I keep referring back to the conversation with Taylor St. John, but she also mentioned, and this is reflected in the exit history, that when exit was being drafted, investment legislation was considered by the exit drafter as like one way for a state to consent to exit. So unlike treaties, this type of consent was uh, in the minds of the drafters of the exit convention. Mm -hmm. And there are consequently a bunch of states that actually expressly refer to exit arbitration, many African states, uh, Albania, El Salvador, and so on and so forth. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily, though, that uh, a mere reference to exit means that the state has given unilateral and, and irrevocable consent to exit arbitration. For example, in Tradex Hellas versus Albania, an exit case uh, based on Albania's foreign investment law of 1993, this was a clear example of consent to exit jurisdiction because that law says the foreign investor may submit the dispute for resolution and the Republic of Albania hereby consents to submission thereof. So consent to exit. Mm -hmm. um, at the opposite end of the spectrum though are those uh, also clear formulations which mention exit but make, make it very clear that further consent in the individual dispute is needed on behalf of the state and the now investor. Now we're talking, now we're talking. <laughs> now you see the potential for disputes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so here we have, uh, in this like end of the spectrum, we have uh, uh, different iterations of this kind of uh, extra consent is needed. For example, the law may provide that uh, exit is available upon express agreement of both parties or as may be mutually agreed by the parties. This type of formulation is known because of the famous Bywater versus Tanzania case uh, where the tribunal did hold that such a provision did not embody a, a standing unilateral offer to arbitrate on behalf of Tanzania, but that a subsequent separate you know, ad hoc consent was required. So now we have the two extreme poles in, in, uh, on the spectrum of different laws. We have the ones that 
clearly provide for ICSID and the ones that do, but also require extra consent in a separate document. And in between these, we have the real interesting ones, the, those that are super unclear, <laughs> use imprecise formulations. Always a favorite in legislation, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, we have the laws of Zimbabwe and Malawi, which uh, simply inform possible foreign investors in the law that the state is a party to the exit convention. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a self-standing consent to arbitrate, but who knows. And there are other laws that refer to exit in a more mandatory but still vague terms by stating, for instance, that disputes will be resolved quote, within the framework, end quote, of ICSID, or by appending to the dispute settlement clause in the law certain disclaimers or or qualifications such as if applicable or where the ICSID convention applies. This is the case with the Egyptian and the Venezuelan investment law, for example, which once again gives us some fodder to argue. And argue they did in SPP versus Egypt, the first case brought before exit on the basis of a domestic law provision. And if you recall, part of uh, Arbitration Without Privity, the article written by Jan Paulson that we discussed on the book club, who was also counsel in that case, which he didn't mention, I think, in the article. In that case, if you remember, the investor claimed that Egypt had given its consent to exit jurisdiction by enacting the 1974 law, and that the investor then consented in a letter from its managing director to Egypt's Minister of Tourism and again, by filing, actually, the request for exit arbitration. Egypt argued that the provision in the law was not a sufficient basis for the center's jurisdiction, but the tribunal found that no separate ad hoc manifestation of uh, consent between the parties was needed and then upheld jurisdiction. Uh, although, to repeat, the law basically said that um, the investors' home country and Egypt, blah, 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 uh, submit dispute or within the framework of the exit convention to which Egypt has adhered right where such convention applies so that was enough for that tribunal to actually uh, be read as a self-standing consent to arbitration I mean I don't see I mean I understand it's not very clear but I do see it as a self-standing assent to arbitration to exit to exit arbitration even though it is vague terms like within the framework, and sure, a lawyer can make the argument that that's not um, a standing offer, but I mean, what else? Like, there's a lot of references to exit arbitration in the exit convention, and you're talking about settling disputes. Yeah. Don't you think this is? I, I, I'm going to I'm going to return to this briefly because it has to do with the interpretation. Like, how do you interpret these? If you had, uh, just for the for the fun of gaming this out, if you had a contract that said, um, you know, uh, disputes shall be settled, shall be settled um, in a manner agreed upon by the parties within the framework of the exit convention, that would probably, mm-hmm. in like a contractual context, I think, be sufficient to say that this is a clause that refers to exit arbitration and, and the parties have agreed to this. Right. But the, the difference here though is that the, the law is not an agreement, it's not a contract. There's no like binding uh, autonomous mutual party expression here because it's just one party. And that's the key I think, that it's, it's an offer essentially. Right, the, but, it's, but that's what the, I mean, that's what these treaties are in and of themselves, no? 
Yeah, yeah, true, true. But that once again, that's a treaty. Then we have we know how to interpret treaties. We talk about that all the time on the podcast. We yeah. don't really, know, as an arbitral tribunal, how to interpret the Egyptian law. Yeah. Okay. Mm, okay. <laughs> we'll go back to this shortly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have. Um, the Albanian law, again, the exit case that I mentioned initially, um, the, uh, the uh, Tradex versus Albania, the tribunal said that it can now be considered an est- as established and not requiring further reasoning that such consent can also be affected unilaterally by a contracting state in its national laws, the consent becoming effective at the latest if and when the foreign investor files its claim with exit, making use of the respective national law. And the reason I'm citing this is because the question, of course, was how does then the investor consent, assuming that the state has consented, how does the investor consent? And here, this is arbitration without privity. Typically, uh, the investor accepts the offer simply by submitting a request for arbitration. But it's different because uh, unlike a treaty, the state that has enacted the law can, of course, amend or change or even just withdraw the law unilaterally at any time, thereby also withdrawing its offer to arbitrate, which Uh, you can with, with treaties. Um, so this is, uh, and there actually is some, has something that tells me that Dimitri is going to be a good practicing lawyer if he w- wishes to. He added here a, a recommendation that it makes sense for investors to accept in writing the offer contained in the host state's legislation even before the dispute arises. Mm. So when you make the investment or you apply to have the investment authorized or whatever, even if there's no dispute yet, you might be wise to include and like we hereby accept the offer for you know potential arbitration should the shit hit the fan further down the line. Academically appealing, practically not <laughs> going to happen really often. <laughs> you think it's going to set off alarms at the state? Uh, people don't know about investment arbitration when they invest until they're in it. Okay, uh, but uh, even still in 2019 yeah, i i would say a lot a lot but um i think people yeah they are becoming more sophisticated but i don't it's i mean they they have trouble putting an arbitration clause into a contract let alone looking up the legislation and agreeing to legislation and it's it's very proactive and of course as yeah, a counsel right. you would say yes please look into this but um and if you're structuring an investment in different jurisdictions sure you're going to be more attuned to that but um it is a bit... T- I mean, even getting authorization and investment, if you need to do that under the treaty, like, a lot of people don't even do that, and you have to go to, like, an implied authorization by the way the state... Yeah, yeah right. Investment. Yeah. yeah. This was actually on the table in in a case that I only know about because it, it, there was a dissenting opinion by Kai Hubert that we both know well, a, a pretty recent exit case, Société Resort versus uh, uh, Côte d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast, dealt with this and whether the investor had consented validly. Uh, so not the state's consent, but the investor's consent, because uh, Article 20 of the Ivory Coast Investment Code is uh, confusingly drafted and requires the investor to expressly consent to exit arbitration when it applies for authorization of its investment. Mm-hmm. So in order to be protected by the law, you need to have an investment that has been authorized right. by the state. Right. And in order to also have access to exit arbitration, you must... Well, this is, we don't have to go into the to the weeds on this, but it seemed that the investment law also uh, provided that you must uh, consent to arbitration expressly mm-hmm. in the authorization instrument. 
Ah. And here, here the investor had not done so. Um, so the state argued that uh, since the investor had not made an express reference to exit in its authorization instrument, it had not accepted the state's offer to arbitrate in the law. And the majority of the tribunal disagreed with this interpretation and found that there was no need under the code as, as they interpreted the code to expressly refer to exit arbitration in its authorization application, but that the application, you know, just generally, b- because it was under the, the scope of the law, would be enough to to be an expression of consent on behalf of the of yeah. the investor. But then one arbitrator dissented uh, and uh, read the clause as saying that you actually have to expressly refer to exit arbitration. Um, this is a very interesting case that I can recommend to to students of treaty interpretation uh, as well as, of course, general interpretation. It wasn't a treaty, but it's interesting to contrast this with with treaty interpretation because the Investment Act uh, contained many inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. And the, both the majority and the dissenter discussed how to approach these inconsistencies in the language. And it's only written in French, which I think complicated things a little bit because the arbitration was in English. So it, it was in treaty interpretation. So the Vienna Convention does not necessarily help you. And that brings me back to what you flagged right. earlier. Right. That sort of the final point here. How do you interpret arbitration clauses in domestic legislation? I mean, essentially, this is applicable law. Mm-hmm. What, how, what do you do as an international tribunal when you're tasked with interpreting inconsistencies or, or uh, lack of clarity in a state's legislation? And it's generally accepted here that questions of jurisdiction of an international tribunal are determined by international law, regardless of the source of jurisdiction. So in the case of exit arbitration, we are, of course, dealing with Article 25 of the exit convention here. So there's always always this basis in a treaty. So even though national legislation may be a decisive element of the process leading up to, to the consent between the host state and the investor, the tribunal's jurisdiction arguably remains a matter of international law. And investment tribunals have actually rejected purely national methods of statutory interpretation in cases where the host state's consent was express, expressed in legislation. Because that is, of course, what you'd argue as the state you would say, well, this is, you know, this is the Egyptian law with the Egyptian state. You have to interpret the Egyptian law in a dispute involving the Egyptian state, uh, you know, using the tools that we use in Egypt when we try to interpret in, in domestic court, basically, what the legislator wanted. But this hasn't really been accepted by investment tribunals who treat these generally as a matter of international law. Mm-hmm. Which I think is is reasonable. And there's a whole uh, line of of cases here in general international law, because the way, so the bridge into international law here is through the international law figure of unilateral declarations. So this is a unilateral declaration on behalf of the state. And that is hardcore international law, which is sort of outside of our scope, I think, uh, somewhat, you know, because there's uh, ILC, the International Law Commission has made a lot of uh, work on on this on unilateral declarations of states and how and to what extent states can create legal obligations by their own unilateral acts that aren't the result of an agreement with another state or another party Um, but i think um because i want to spend an hour and a half on the book club (laughs) we can tie it up there (laughs) yeah basically i just you know just to take to take something away for those who are interested in this i think a pretty good summary of um how to interpret on this final point uh, was made by the tribunal in tidewater versus venezuela from 2013 
where the tribunal summarized its approach to interpreting Venezuela's uh, investment law uh, in the following way. The investment legislation must be interpreted, one, in good faith and in a reasonable way, two, taking into consideration the ordinary and grammatical meaning of the words that are used, textual analysis within parentheses, and three, in conformity with the intention of the state, which can be deduced from the text and also from the circumstances of its preparation and the purposes intended to be served. So this is not the Vienna principles, but it's pretty similar to treaty interpretation right. uh, if, if we accept the Tidewater Tribunal's uh, analysis as some sort of starting point. It's a logical starting point, definitely. It is. And there's uh, we can have interpretation school, basically, but I think... The, the cynical approach is that towards towards the end of any operation of this, you'll end up with more or less the same tools anyway. Uh, good, good faith and what was the intention of the state and the ordinary meaning and the grammatical meaning. It's easy to say in the abstract, but you have to deal with all the complications in, in the specific when you have it in front of you. Have you ever worked, worked on a case that involved investment legislation this way? Mm, no. No. Uh, no. I did something like an argument was raised, but it it, it was not a key point of that. Okay, of I see. That. But I mean, I think if you're just if you're attacking this like any other domestic legislation that is being attacked in an arbitration, you can have kind of experts on the law. You can look to the travaux of the law. You can you know just like you would do in any treaty interpretation. So I think practically the the evidence that you put forward to determine what the state had intended is going to be very similar to what they intended in, in a treaty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you're right. The actual reasoning of the tribunal needs to be couched in something a little bit less Vienna Convention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I loved you just walked right into this and set up the book club segment, focusing, as you just did, on the facts and the evidence and not so much on the law. <laughs> law, law. <laughs> Which is exactly what American lawyers tend to do and something that we'll return to when we discuss dealing in virtue, which discusses uh, quite extensively the differences in legal cultures between U.S. and continental European approaches. Oh, God. Head in hands. I cannot uh, wait to hear what you have to say. Let's go. So, second episode of the Arbitration Station Book Club deals with dealing in virtue, international commercial arbitration, and the construction of a transnational legal order by Yves Desilets and Bryant Garth, first published by the University of Chicago Press in 1996. This timing overlaps with the previous text discussed in this esteemed book club, that is Jon Paulson's article, Arbitration Without Privity. And this timing is interesting, and we'll return to this timing later on. First of all, this book, Brian, this book is a must-read for contemporary arbitration lawyers. I cannot stress this enough. It's mandatory reading. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 I'll get into it. Summer plans. Uh, mandatory, 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 if you want to understand our field. To summarize, it is the book, at least for a few decades until more came along, on the history and sociology of international commercial arbitration. And it touches on so many points that we've discussed earlier on this podcast. I realized that only now because I first read this when I started out in the field and I enjoyed it, but sort of, you know, I lacked the knowledge that I have since acquired. 
rereading it now, it connects so many dots for me. Okay. And I will try. I will try to do it justice in this book club segment, having now raised the bar uh, so high. <laughs> <laughs> we had hoped to record this segment as a discussion with another reader and have at different points actually talk to to different people, including both authors and a few other prominent academics. But despite our best efforts, it's been uh, hard to coordinate schedules, especially I think this time of year. Everyone is super busy in April and May. Yeah. So you and our listeners will have to survive with just me and my subjective reading of this <laughs> classic. <laughs> and I will actually read, I will, uh, for color, you can hear me leafing through the book, I'll do that and read some, some quotes as we go along as well. Are you ready? Yes, yeah, so ready. I got my feet kicked up and everything. <laughs> so this book is written in the mid-1990s at a time when arbitration was at the cusp of changing into what we know today basically and i think also what we just assume to be the way that arbitration operates 25 years after this book was written in the day that we're recording this borders and national characteristics are pretty blurred and often barely noticeable international arbitration is harmonized to a large extent and people like you and me can meet in their mid-20s from different worlds and locations and almost immediately assume that we can speak the same language and can relate to each other. But it was not always thus, Brian. It was not always thus. <laughs> what we have today came as the result of a number of gradual developments. And in 1996, these developments were detectable, maybe for the first time, for a keen observer. And thankfully, two of those wrote this book. And the subtitle is The Construction of a Transnational Legal Order, a very apt subtitle for this book. How was arbitration as we know it today constructed? And it's an, it's an interesting field of law, of course. Uh, we have recorded, I think, over 50 episodes of this podcast, just to emphasize that point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was pointed out by Thomas Hultz in a, a 2016 editorial for Journal of Dispute Settlement where uh, this book Dealing in Virtue is referenced several times and he wrote, I quote now, tax lawyers do not have to sell the idea of taxes contract lawyers the idea of contracts, constitutional lawyers the importance of the constitution mm. end quote mm. Mm, right, because in arbitration those of us who work within the field we also build it at the same time and most importantly for the present purposes we sell it if part, if don't parties tell don't anyone <laughs> well I think that's pretty pretty obvious at this point, <laughs> we do that for almost a full time job both of us because we know that if parties stopped using arbitration tomorrow there would be no more arbitration law unlike tax law and constitutional law which you know you can rely on being there for, for quite, quite some time in the future so, therefore, the actors within the system have a vested interest in developing it. And I think that's an interesting thing about this book is that is it has been read, it is often read, I think, as either, uh, one, a love song to arbitration, hailed as making arbitration sexy as a profession for the first time, or two, as a critical outsider look at a cynical business of private justice. I personally think it's neither of those two, but if you Google around a little bit, this is what you see. Uh, and as I assume every single listener will now go out and get the book, I will leave the, the judgment to you all. But it, it is worth pointing out initially that the, the two professors who wrote this aren't arbitration lawyers. <laughs> Basically, they talked uh, 
to a bunch of uh, figures within arbitration, but they talked to them as outside observers. And then they wrote a book sort of uh, bringing their, their conclusion and their analysis together based off of this material, which is a pretty good uh, starting point, I think. Mm-hmm. I, read a, I read a review that uh, would be the latter of those two um, options, which is that it, it gave it an arc. It said they were like very optimistic. It's a sexy type of field. And then it's saying, well, um, well, I can talk about it later, what the review said, but they definitely said it was on its decline. Okay, I love this. You're like a, a student in high school. You don't read the book, you just read the reviews and then you summarize <laughs> yeah. the reviews. According to Cliff Notes. <laughs> okay, having read the book, let me start from the beginning as the book does. For a long time in the 20th century, arbitration was not a business, it was a calling. Arbitrators were distinguished figures who did not work for profit, but from a sense of duty, honor, and justice. Virtue, as the book title suggests. This started to change in the 70s and accelerated in the 80s. And in the narrative of the book, this development largely played out as a conflict between an old generation and a new generation of arbitration lawyers, the grand old men versus the technocrats. That's the language that is Mm. consistently used. And without spoiling too much, the technocrats, the young guns, they won. (laughs) And that's where we are today. That was clear in the mid-90s, and to us, it's a given. Um, And before I delve into how these two generations differed, it is interesting to note that many of the leading figures of the young guns, the the technocrats that the book talks about, and also talk to, the authors talk to many of these, they are now, to people like you and me, themselves, the old guard. Mm -hmm. So there are people name-checked as belonging to this emerging generation of technocratic professional arbitration lawyers, young men such as Albert Jan van den Jan Paulson, <laughs> and Charlie Brower. <laughs> and in the context of Sweden, which we will absolutely return to, believe you me, because there's a whole chapter on Stockholm in this book, our mutual tutor Kai Hobier is alluded to as belonging to this wave as well. In general, there's a lot of uh, funny guesswork here because there are a lot of anonymous quotes from arbitration insiders, and I'll read some of them. But the key question is, of course, what is it that this new generation came up with and how was it different from what came before? So the grand old men of arbitration were with a few notable exceptions from continental Europe. Primarily, they came from France and from Switzerland and some other continental European countries such as the Netherlands, Belgium and Sweden. They had a very rigid training in civil law. Many were professors and they also had close ties to the ICC in Paris, and the ICC is key in this book because the development of the ICC over the years uh, is often used as a proxy for general tendencies in the field for self-evident reasons because the ICC has always been the dominant universal institution in commercial arbitration. To the grand old men, and uh, for a long time also to the ICC, arbitration was honorable. It was sometimes not even paid. And that idea, I think, is almost ancient, that arbitrators should be, you know, senior figures who are above financial interest and consulted by disputing parties precisely for that reason. But there were problems with this as arbitration grew. And we are now at a point in time, which we've talked about before in the context of ICSID. It's the 1970s, oil crisis, uh, decolonization, globalization, Cold War. 
east-west conflicts, north-south conflicts, all of this that we know about from general history. And as a consequence, there were also more international disputes involving politically sensitive issues and generally also larger amounts than before. So increasingly, arbitration could not be viable if the pool of arbitrators was restricted to, you know, 20 French-speaking law professors. Right. And at the ICC, this became visible. Uh, and the book, as I said, generally builds upon hundreds of interviews with anonymous arbitration insiders, and it's full with amazing quotes. And I'll start with one. <coughs> So this is uh, a member of the the young technocrats cohort, uh, and uh, he or she, very likely he, says, an arbitrator cannot now just step in with all the glorious past and provide the great old man's opinion. Charisma is even a source of error. Uh, and here is another ICC insider. Some of the biggest problems that we see are probably with some of the big names. Why? The authors ask. They're probably just more full of themselves than other people. <laughs> mm. Furthermore, sometimes an eminent arbitrator feels he doesn't have to explain things. And <laughs> another leading figure of the younger generation describes his generation as technically better, more equipped in procedure and substance. Mm. Mm, right. So the old generation had poise and authority drawn from experience and excellent knowledge of substantive law. For example, the idea of Lex Mercatoria, for example, that came from some of these people. Essentially, they were a small elite of Western metropolitans who believed in universal justice and yada, yada, yada. Whereas the new generation were professionals, experts in procedure, and they believed in advocacy more than, uh, should we say, universal justice. Uh, and the book... There's another quote from, from the authors. Since they, the new generation, are for the most part too young to compete with the charisma of the grand old men, they must instead emphasize their technical sophistication. <laughs> and uh, on this note, they also go on to explain an interesting conflict, not necessarily a conflict, but a trend that is still, I think, prevailing in arbitration, that we have said that we would get back to sometime, and we probably should, and that is the mentorship. Because uh, in, there are a few names given expressly here. Many of these young guns themselves trained for a senior person. Right. So for every Jan van den Bay, a young technocrat, there's a Peter Sanders, a distinguished scholar involved in early ancestral harmonization work. Yves Durand and Julian Liu were disciples of the French professor René David. Pierre Lalive in Switzerland and uh, Goldman in France, they similarly had a bunch of mentees. So for every aspiring lawyer at this time, David Rivkin, Kai Obeer, Charles Brower, Karl-Heinz Böckstiegel, there is a senior figure of the grand old man genera uh, generation. And here we, I just should note, yes, there's basically not a female name in the entire book. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Obviously. Women can't do arbitration, as we all know at this point. <clears throat> so this shift between the different approaches within generations played out at the ICC, or so the authors argue. Uh, initially, the ICC was a place for continental European dispute resolution, but it turned into, over time, 
a professionalized bureaucracy with the ICC turning into, quote, the principal place where the politics of arbitration is elaborated and expressed, end quote. Hmm. And this was frustrating for the older generation that the ICC became judicialized and arbitration became a professionalized sort of service rather than uh, just like going to an old man to have things figured out, I think. We sold out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's another way of putting it. Uh, uh, yet another way of putting it is uh, the way the book puts it, that we have here the classical scenario of an institution that is devouring its founding fathers in order to better follow their work. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and this development, and now we come back to the previous segment, is in large part due to the influence of American-style litigation. So this is maybe something you would sympathize with because we've discussed this at length on this podcast. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, arbitration is not a game conceived of and for the civil law academic, but now we instead have rules for procedure, such as discovery, evidence, cross-examination, etc., etc. And there's also a cultural conflict at play here, and that is the relationship to clients. Because the tradition in Europe was that arbitration lawyers uh, did not concern themselves with the parties that much. They were above that, basically. U.S. lawyers, however, as we all know, were natural advocates and not ashamed to use tactics to score a win for their client. So the turn towards a U.S. approach meant that arbitration became more focused on conflicts and on adversity, and American firms started to spread over the world, including in Paris and London and, and Geneva. This shift in philosophy really took place, as I mentioned, against a backdrop of, of changing disputes. And the oil arbitrations of the 1970s are key here. We teach some of those classic cases. When you read them, the, the early ones, Judge Gunnar Lagergren from Sweden, example, for example, has, has written a few to us, they seem not uh, sophisticated, basically. They're short, there's no recounting the facts, there's no uh, nothing we really would uh, associate with contemporary arbitral awards. But it's by and large um, a ruling that uh, most parties seem to be equally unhappy with. Um, but that changed. And um, we have an advent of US lawyers and law firms that started to compete for cases. And by extension, although maybe a bit later in time, arbitrators also arguably started to compete for cases, which is maybe a little bit controversial to say now, but I think we all assume that is the case. Are you, mm -hmm. Can you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But to a 70-year-old Swiss arbitrator in 1978, this was astonishing and probably very frustrating because to be successful in arbitration you now all of a sudden needed what the authors call double capital social and scholarly otherwise you weren't competitive and that is still the case of course you and i both have social and scholarly capital we have maybe not evenly distributed amounts of them between <laughs> the two of us <laughs> but we realize that we need both in order to be successful that's true we talk about that on this podcast as well yeah exactly 
And the authors use a specific oil arbitration as a case study, and they explain that it wasn't just the the legal world that changed, it was also the business world at this time in the 70s, when um, people with MBAs replaced engineers as the key players in large disputes. And lawyers basically followed along this development, which you could call, if you're being nice, a more sophisticated approach, if you're less nice, as you said, selling out. <laughs> right. Um, and there's a great quote in this case study from an unnamed American law firm partner speaking about the professor types that were still predominant in the arbitrations, but were increasingly being replaced by professionalized U.S. lawyers. He says about these professor types, quote, they were very insular. I thought that they had a very fixed set of prejudices. A lot of them were contrary to American legal training, like they totally gave lip service to the facts, just kind of assumed they knew the facts, but they would make off-the-cuff judgments as to who was right or wrong based on who they had lunch with last week and then told them something. I was just very upset with them. They were strong on the law, though. The trouble was that they would get off on the debate on the law and you could lose them for days and they get involved <laughs> in fights with each other over some esoteric interpretation of French law, which was applicable in my case because it was Algerian law, which was really French law. And you'd have to pull them back. It was like a ringmaster in a circus with a whip trying <laughs> to get them back to pay attention to what was really going on. But they wouldn't pay attention to the facts. <laughs> right. End quote. Facts, of course, as you've already uh, explained yourself, are very important to American dispute lawyers. Whereas the law, to simplify, is important to continental lawyers. Interesting. I could talk about this book forever, but in order to limit us, I think I will fast forward a little bit because the authors couch the fight for the solo arbitration as a competition between different domestic approaches to disputes. And by and large, the Americans won. And you and I now have to study cross-examination in order to make a living. <laughs> not, uh, not me so much, but you have to. Uh, but the interesting thing here is to see how institutions and domestic jurisdictions position themselves in relation to each other. And the book contains a number of chapters that study specific jurisdictions, such as the US, the UK, Egypt, Hong Kong. But another one uh, is Stockholm. And I hope listeners will bear with me for focusing more on this particular chapter than on Cairo or Hong Kong for obvious reasons. Uh, this is the started as the Stockholm Arbitration Podcast, basically. That's true. It's not in, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but for obvious reasons, still, the role of Stockholm in the development of international arbitration is of special interest to us both. And the chapter touches upon a few things we have ourselves talked about coming as we do from the Stockholm arbitration community. The authors actually even went to Uppsala for a seminar with leading arbitration professionals in Sweden. And I think many of the quotes came from this session and from conversations they had in connection with this. And this is something we have th thought about and talked about, both you and I. Because in relation, for example, to New York and London, the Stockholm arbitration community has been bad at selling itself. We've complained about this, you and I, about the lack of international outlook and limited willingness to go out in the world and compete for international right. cases, etc. It, it's better now, obviously, because the world has changed. Um, but historically, this was very true, and it used to be much more like this. And the authors of Dealing in Virtue argue that the... Uh, let me quote them, actually. The structural qualities that give value in international arbitration to the notables of Swedish law on the market, seniority, 
unquestionable independence are precisely the qualities that prevented them from exploiting the reputation through promotional investment, which would have been necessary to gain an advantageous position in the larger market for international commercial conflicts. So in short, what attracts people to Stockholm is that the lawyers there do not sell themselves, but rather sit around in a neutral part of Europe waiting for cases to come. And this is not 100% accurate anymore, of course, because the SEC and many practitioners attend conferences and behave just like lawyers from any other part of the world. But historically, arbitrators in Sweden were almost like judges. And pretty often they were actually judges or retired judges because that has always been allowed in Sweden. Neutrality, fairness, virtue. These are the characteristics of a judge. And the authors interview senior figures in in Stockholm who say expressly that they are reluctant to market Stockholm. It wouldn't look good, one said. Mm. And that, to me, was a key to understanding both the Swedish psyche and Sweden's role in international arbitration. (laughs) Right. So uh, this fact that the Stockholm community was not pushing to capture a market share meant that the authors in 1996 predicted that Stockholm's share of the market would remain limited. There's also a hilarious comment from a Swiss arbitrator saying that Sweden's too soft on communism. (laughs) Which might be true to a Swiss person at the time. They were too soft on communism. Yeah, you know, east-west, neutral, uh, 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 all that thing. That the, the, the communists, China oh, and Russia, like giving them like a McCarthyan type of response. Got it? No, no yeah, exactly. No, no, no. You you could come and arbitrate in Sweden even if you were a communist, which wasn't a good thing for people <laughs> in France and Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, Sweden has a couple of those uh, doormat policies that I don't really appreciate. But sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's not go into that. <laughs> They do mention, though, a new generation in their 40s when the book was written who are part of the professionalized, technically skilled global movement. And they, as we now know, they prevailed. By contrast, though, in the U.S., arbitration had to be sold, both internally and externally. And the authors never used the phrase themselves. But what we on this podcast talk about in terms of pro-arbitration is a phenomenon that is described at length in the book. Basically, it is the history of pro-arbitration. And they use, for example, the Mitsubishi case, which we teach in Uppsala, and I would imagine you have read at some point too. Yes. Where the U.S. Supreme Court allowed for arbitration of an antitrust case connected to Japan. And uh, it's described by the authors how there was a lot of lobbying, basically, although they call it local missionary activity, involved in this case in getting the U.S. Supreme Court to open up this category of cases for arbitration, uh, which wasn't allowed initially. And there's a whole thing here with the American Arbitration Association and the ICC both submitted amicus briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court, which I had no idea about. I didn't know that. And the AAA or the AAA, the American Arbitration Association, they said basically to make sure that whatever the Supreme Court did it must at least understand that the United States, as a large trading country, had better not dismiss international arbitration easily. And the ICC even included a long list of typical arbitrators to sort of convince the U.S. Supreme Court that they wouldn't be giving up cases that would otherwise go to court and hand them over to some uh, weird foreigner. But there were a lot of uh, distinguished Americans that sat in ICC cases as well, which maybe I think the authors argue that this helped convince the U.S. Supreme Court to allow for arbitration of of such cases. Mm -hmm. 
Very, very interesting. Before we turn to your reading of a review of the book, let me conclude by the way the book concludes, because that is super interesting for a contemporary reader. What now, the authors ask themselves, for the future of international commercial arbitration? And it's almost eerie how right they've turned out to be, at least in certain regards, because the book does describe, up until this point, the uh, evolving international private justice centered around the ICC in a specific geopolitical era of liberal policies. Arbitration grew as part of the business world and in opposition to the jurisdiction of states. But the authors saw signs of the state returning. NAFTA had just been concluded, the WTO, the European Court of Justice. And this return of the state might suggest a new era in international arbitration, where the authors say major business conflicts might be fought on terrain closer to the states with the states implicated in the contests and the contestants. And they also mention the EU specifically and how the court in Luxembourg, quote, has been cool or even hostile to the International Chamber of Commerce and international arbitration, end quote. Mm. And in the age of ACMEA, of course, this was an accurate prediction. Right. It's fair to say. <laughs> we know now how arbitration has adapted and survived. Investment arbitration barely existed when the book was written, and this is full circle because this research project was concluded right about the time that Arbitration Without Privity was written. And investment arbitration has, of course, dramatically changed the world of arbitration and actually made it, I think you could argue, state-centered. The state is back, but up until the mid-1990s, international commercial arbitration was way away from the state. That's fair. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you've done a really good job saying what they said, but now I want to know what you think about this. Um, According to, I mean, the trainees are waiting outside, so not to be a proper senior, we'll have to like help them, uh, invite them in in a second. But the, I mean, I I think you're right that they have predicted this like potential decline in arbitration and that they, they, um, they have predicted that people were going to kind of catch on to what the original system was kind of getting away with, which is like these, you know, closed ranks of members in this process. And they've been, you know, patting themselves on the back and whatever. I read the the book review that I read is from uh, John Flood, who's from the University of Westminster. Um, And he said that, you know, as he says, as long as that the institutions of globalization lagged behind the social and economic developments arbitration flourished so they said as lo- so basically saying is like as long as arbitration was kind of breaking new ground it was able to you know dominate the market and become this huge market that it is today but now that things like the WTO and the ECJ and now this European court um, <clears throat> have caught on then you're going to find kind of this demise in arbitration and it'll be like the death toll the death knell of international arbitration. Um, but he says that's still an open question. Um, yeah, I think we need a new version of this book, basically. And there might be one out there that I just don't know about. I have a sense that there's some sort of like updated, you know, similar study. Otherwise, one has to be has to be made. Yeah. Because I, I think arbitration will survive this and and adapt. That is something that I take with me reading this book, that it's such a uh, flexible and uh, attuned world, the world of arbitration, 
that it will figure out a way to be relevant regardless of what happens in the surrounding world. Um, I agree with you. I think the system's going to continue, but um, it, it is going to look at it's going to have a different mask and a different face than it does now. Yeah, we're in the in the midst of some quite fundamental change, as was the case in 1996. <laughs> um, okay, should we invite the trainees in and talk to them? Yes, please open the door and the beer. welcome back to the final segment of our final episode of season three we are celebrating winston today because we have a trainee and a newly qualified lawyer we have our trainee kata here hello hi and we have our newly qualified lawyer who was just a trainee prior to this ollie hi how are you doing good good thank you (laughs) we're in our offices here at winston because i wanted to enlighten joel and also i have still no idea even though i've worked here for six months how what it's what what a traineeship is how you come to get into it um joel there's these things called vax schemes and all this stuff that i really just want to like understand um ollie coming out of this process how did you when did you start your traineeship uh so sorry can i jump in ollie yeah of course it's rude before you even get to to uh to start speaking but i just want to preface the whole thing by saying assume that i am three years old and I know nothing <laughs> about this. Vax scheme sounds like some sort of vaccination scheme. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't sound very Just nice. keep, keep that in mind. Sure, okay. Um, so I, I started my training contract in March 2017. Uh, the training contract here at Winston, some firms do it slightly differently, but here at Winston they do four, six-month seats. And I think that the system might have slightly changed, but generally you have to do contentious and non-contentious work. So a litigation okay. seat and some kind of corporate or transactional seat. Uh, during my training contract, I did seats in aviation finance, competition, um, what else did I do? Corporate and uh, dispute resolution and white collar crime. And I've recently qualified into the disputes team here. Did you? So, but the, what I find fascinating, okay, talk about the process before. Sure. Get it. Okay, so, so in terms of my background, I did a history degree. Uh, and because that's a non law degree, you have to do a conversion course called the GDL. So I did that course in, I think, 2015-16, following which I was made an offer um, for a training contract. Uh, I then did another course called the LPC, the Legal Practice course, uh, and that's another one-year course, which is a lot more practical. Um, After that, I worked for six, seven months uh, at another uh, company within Thomson Reuters, and then I started here. The the GDL course, I I think Kata can talk about the law degree process, but the GDL is the graduate diploma in law uh, and that's a a very intense one-year course um, and you have to do seven modules so you have to do I'll probably forget some of them but things like tort contract public law the main one the the main modules right Uh, and you do that over the course of one year uh, and then you can go on and do that LPC which law students have to do as well so that's kind of the process that I went through before I got on the uh, before I started training and that's because you did a history degree correct okay but you did a law degree, Kata. Yes, um, I did a three-year law degree, and then in um, after my third year of uh, law school, I did a VAC scheme here at Winston, um, on the back of which I got the training contract offer. And then I did the LPC for one year, and then started here in September 2017. So they, Joel, they interview how how much before your actual start date? So mine was about a. Year 
year and a bit. I think my vaccine was in July 2016, and then I started here in September 2017. But it can it can be sort of yeah. even. It can be more two years. Really? Yeah, I think mine was two. Yeah, about two years because I was offered in summer 2015, and then the due the, the start date was March 2017. Jesus. So about two years can be more. Can be can be a lot more in advance. So it's uh, it's a big commitment that the that the firm makes that you make to that that yeah. whole process. Yeah. Why do they do it so far in advance? Um, I think part of it is the fact that they sponsor you for your, um, well, not all um, firms do, but many firms sponsor you for the um, GDL if you have to do that yeah. and the LPC. I see, I see, I see. Yeah. Um, and then do you choose which seat you start in? Are they just like, put you uh, depends on the firm. Some firms do it, some firms don't. Yeah. Uh, I think for the first one, a lot of firms see it as kind of like a, a testing ground kind of thing. And, and because you have three seats up, generally have three seats after that. Um, you know, uh, they tend to put you in a, a seat where they, they just need someone to, to fill in. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Do Does Winston have the typical amount of trainees or usually there's like more? Um, I, I think it depends on the size of the firm. Okay. Um, uh, some UK-based law firms who have sort of thousands of employees will have more trainees. Yeah. Um, but I think generally American firms in London will have fewer trainees just because the size of the office is right. smaller. Do you, I mean, is it, because basically this is part, in order to be qualified as a lawyer, you have to do a traineeship, yeah. but it's competitive to get a traineeship. Yes. So there are people who just don't become lawyers because they don't get traineeships? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Really? The, the, the other thing just to add is that we're obviously speaking as trainees. There are other ways to become qualified. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think there's, the, there's a thing called Silex, which is you, you become a legal professional and then somehow do it that way. They've also introduced this new thing called the, the so-called super exam. And I can't really speak to that. Yeah. I haven't read much about it. <laughs> or, the, or the squee, as some people like to call it. Um, but I think, I think what they're trying to do is, is start a process where you can have alternate experiences which can add into a training contract. So whereas now you have oh, to do okay. two years of training in a law firm, some people might have been a paralegal for six months or worked in, you know, in-house for six months and then worked in a different business for 12 months and then another one for six months. So they're trying to, to make sure that more people can get access to the profession, right. whereas traditionally it's restricted by being selected by a law firm. Which makes sense. I mean, what if someone gets a PhD to say, I mean, because for example, like Joel can now go out and practice. He just got his PhD. Right. But according to the current system in the UK, he would not be able to be qualified, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. Strange. Um, and then what? what we, <laughs> we don't want you anyway. Um, but we. So you kind of show up on your first day of your traineeship, and were you, Katza? Were you like, I have no idea what I'm about to do. Uh, I mean, I was definitely nervous, but I, I. It was helpful that I sort of knew most people here already from my vac scheme a year okay. before. So when on my first day, a lot of people were like, "Oh hi, like nice to see you again." Blah blah. blah. Right. Um, and I knew um, I had been emailed a couple weeks before about which seat I would be starting in. So I knew who my supervisor was going to be, so that was helpful. Okay. And then also the first couple of days, you spend a lot of time in you know, IT training and, right. and stuff like that. So you don't actually do a lot of proper work work, and then you... It eases you into yeah, the process. Yeah. But did, like, what kind of tasks are you getting as a, as a trainee versus... I mean, what, what type of tasks does someone send to a trainee versus sending to a paralegal? Or does that vary between firm and between the definition? I think, yeah, I think it varies between firm. I think that trainees are generally, are, 
I'd say obviously it depends on the on the partner and the firm and things, but trainees are generally um, encouraged to, to grow a bit more and they're given more substantive tasks. Obviously, you know that on on um, in in every area that firms practice in, there are yeah. administrative tasks that need to be done no matter what. So you know, in dispute seats, you need to do uh, you know bundles in. Uh, corporate seats, you need to do, uh, you know, prepare bibles to send out to clients after transactions have closed, things like that that paralegals and trainees would have to do. Even in some cases, junior associates would have to do. Um, but you are encouraged to get to take part in, you know, research tasks, uh, attend meetings with uh, clients, and again, it it just depends on what's going on and, and the partners, right? And the firm as well. Do you, Kata, which seat of your four are you in now? I'm in my final seat, but my so actually my final seat is split between two seats so i'm doing three months in disputes which is the seat i'm currently in right and then i'm going to do three months in general finance okay do you think and all you can chime in on this as well are there any i i there's clear positives and i think it's positives for the person training is that you get exposed to different types of Mm. law um do you feel any negatives in having so many seats or having it like do you think if someone was let's say you're very interested you did your aviation finance seat could you do all of your seats in aviation finance um i don't think so just because there is that sra requirement that you have to do a contentious seat or at least some amount of time in a contentious uh department and I still, I think that is still a requirement, th- yeah. but maybe don't quote me on that. Gotcha. I, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, and I think that's definitely one of the advantages of a training contract is that, you know, you come out of law school and you've done the LPC, so maybe you have an idea of what you'd like to do. Um, but the training contract is definitely a good way to um, experience other areas of law that maybe you hadn't considered qualifying in before right um so maybe you really enjoyed i don't know like competition law when you were at university but then you do a corporate c and you're like oh actually this is what i want to do for the rest of my life right so and yeah i think six months is a good amount of time to spend in each seat because it allows you to sort of immerse yourself in the work right but then it's also not like two years or something of your time do you think the million dollar question if you put your comparative glasses on do you think that this type of approach where you spend less time in university and more time doing in-work training turns you into a better lawyer generally speaking than you know the traditional four or five years of just like sitting in in school and then as brian said just starting straight out of law school um i mean i I think it's it's a bit tough seeing that you know we haven't experienced you know, the other side the of other it. side of it, and I'm not sure anyone really will or would want to having qualified in one jurisdiction having to go through it again. But uh, I think that there's having done the training contract. I think there's nothing quite like learning about something in practice. I think that you know you can be uh, you know you can study up to the hilt and you know do all sorts of different courses and, and learn about things. But then there's there's nothing quite like, yeah, sitting with someone practicing day to day and, mm-hmm. and learning about it and learning, you know, how clients work and what they you know, what they want and what the objectives are and how you can use the law to, to get that. Uh, and I think that's a really useful process. The, I mean, I can... Go ahead. Sorry, the, the other thing with the, the four six-month seats, there are some firms that will do... Uh, six four months seats. Yeah, six four months seats. So uh, there are some firms. Else. Yeah, there are some firms that have a lot more niche departments. So you know they could have like a, a banking team, but then within that team they have you know 
10 different sub teams or something so I mean it might work in those contexts it wouldn't really work here because we have fewer departments to, to move between right. um, but just saying that there are alternate ways that you can structure the training contract okay that's quite cool could mm. you do a training seat in a different country yeah so a lot of firms um, that have offices uh, around the world offer um, secondments okay. so you can I think you must have to like apply for them right um and then potentially you get to go to like Australia for six months or something. Right. You, you can also do secondments to clients as well. Yeah. So you can work oh. in-house at the client. Okay. Yeah. Joel, to, to your question on comparative, um, comparing the two systems, I, I mean, I can just say that coming up the ranks for myself and walking into Manhammer the first day versus uh, Ollie who just qualified and walked into his same office the first day, which was the same office he had been working in for years, for the year before that. But um, the... We had, and this is a very mundane example, but it just gives you an idea to compare. Is that you know, Ollie was listening in on a call and taking notes, and like had it in like well formatted and drafted in a way that was like very useful. Whereas you would get a someone walking in in Sweden or in the U.S. and they would have to take notes on a call and they would bring like a pen and a paper and um, you know, take shorthand notes of what the call was about instead of taking like verbatim notes on what the call was about to make it more helpful. So that, that experience. <laughs> yeah, I think there's certain practical working things that you get to grips with more as a, as a junior, as a, as a trainee, uh, that you don't necessarily get from um, academia. I think the other thing to say about my, my path with the history degree is that um, going into a disputes area, which you know does involve uh, reading cases, legislation, and things like that, the GDL is very focused, and it's lit it literally just gives you the, the right amount of law to, to kind of get by. And although I, I, you know, there's lots of litigators out there that um, have done a GDL or a history degree and, and, and taken that route, I think there is something to be said for doing a law degree and that you have that more rigorous legal training. Although a lot of people tell me that on a law degree, you'll do things like Roman law, which you're never going to have to use in practice. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Did you have to do Roman law? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> um, but just kind of... Uh, jumping onto what someone said before, I can't remember who, but about just going back to the advantages, or not advantages, but benefits of a training contract. Um, it's good to be able to sit with different people as well, like different supervisors, because you get to experience different working styles and then you kind right. of mold your own based on like sort of what you thought potentially worked well or what you didn't think worked so well as you were being supervised. Mm -hmm. So that's quite helpful, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, that truly comparative approach, I think, is the biggest advantage of it. Um, I think we get, because in the US, you, you even apply to a firm and you don't even know what department you're going to get mm -hmm. into. So it's, I mean, is that the same here that you could potentially qualify into something that you did not want to qualify into? No. Okay. Well, well uh, mm, so actually. The, and and th this can happen at all firms. It's that sometimes hiring happens on a, on a business need basis. So sometimes it might be that one department is full up and they've hired lots of people recently and they just don't need a junior person, but they actually have lots of space in another department. So they make an offer for that department and right. then the person might make a decision on that basis. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind that whatever you decide that you want to qualify into is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. So. If, oh really? Ge well, generally. Well, generally. There is, oh. there is some scope to change, but it's quite but restricted. It's, yeah. yeah. So if, if, for example, you're at your current firm and you're, you want to qualify into the corporate team, but you find out that there are no roles available in the corporate team, but they say, oh, but we have something in um, litigation. In litigation. <laughs> yeah. 
um, would you be interested in that? Then you really have to think like, oh, do I want to just accept this offer just to have a job? Right. Or do I want to look externally and qualify into corporate somewhere else? Right. Because Jesus, the end of the training contract is also a natural break in kind of a career path. And yeah. it is an opportunity to move. Mm. Um, and some people do take that, some people yeah. don't. And it depends on the firm. Interesting. Yeah. What is this VAC scheme process? Um, so the VAC scheme is short for a vacation scheme. Oh. It's basically like a summer internship. Oh, um, okay. That's, yeah. That's, <laughs> um, <laughs> so you... Um, Usually when you're in your second year of a law degree, I think, yeah. yeah second year or, law degree. Or, or later. Or final year non-law degree, yeah. generally. I think. Yes. Um, you apply for vacation schemes at various firms, and then um, you hopefully get one. But even if you don't get one, that's not necessarily an issue in terms of finding a training contract later on. Okay. The only, um, or I guess one of the benefits of having a VAC scheme is that at the end of your VAC scheme, like on the last day or the second to last day, you will automatically get a training contract interview on most VAC schemes. I don't know if I all of them work this way, but for example, the Winston VAC scheme. Um, so yeah, we all automatically got an interview for a training contract on the like, second to last day of the VAC scheme. I see. Um, so you have that like in kind right. of. Right. But is getting your VAC scheme interview or getting the training contract interview, is it all based on grades? No. Or is it more? No, it's not necessarily. No, it, it, it depends on your university and a lot, a lot of it on your, your prior experience yeah. and your ge general interest and how you do it into you. It's, yeah. it's quite a broad picture because I think, uh, I'm sure this is the same in every jurisdiction, but you know, firms will get lots of applications through the door and sometimes it's very hard to tell candidates apart. Um, so it can be different factors that differentiate people. Obviously the grades are very important yeah, and you're not going to make the right. cut unless you've got the grade minimum yeah. grade requirements. Right. So it is important. but. You know, because there's often a lot of candidates, particularly at the, the bigger firms, or they'll get thousands of applications. Mm. They need to differentiate people somehow. So they, um, and also cu cultural fit is quite important as well. I think a lot of people are, you know, in fact, most people are probably capable of doing the job. Um, it's just a matter of fitting in. Um, and, that, and that's also what the VAC scheme is about, trying to find the, the firm, trying to find people that are, you know, would get on in that environment. Because I think all the people who are selected for the VAC scheme are more than capable of doing the job of a trainee and, and you know further down the line an associate um, but it's just finding those right people and then it's also about the the participants in the scheme making mm -hmm. sure that the firm is right for them and that they work well with the people at the firm and it's it's also the type of work that they want to do and, and the other thing is that often when when you're studying you don't necessarily know a lot about you know in practice what it means to do something so in particularly certain industries so with finance as a law student or a history student, you're not going to know a lot about capital markets or right. derivatives or you know arbitration necessarily. You know, so it's it's quite important to get that practical experience on the VAC scheme so that you can understand a bit more about what you're going to do and decide whether or not you like right. doing that. Do you feel that now that you have qualified into a specific practice group, that you have been able to use? I mean, this is quite recent, but that for the time now, you've been able to use what you have learned in your other rotations or your other seats for your disputes definitely definitely okay. uh, it's been very useful i think with the transactional seats that i've done so aviation finance and corporate there's a lot of uh, document management and drafting skills that are very useful mm -hmm. um and then also so, yeah just some of the interpersonal skills and the negotiation skills that you use and those are very useful yeah yeah 
It's, I think it does bring kind of a more holistic approach to disputes because that's yeah. what we're talking about today. So it's just that you're not, especially when you get to something like the calculation of damages or even how the industry of your client operates that is underlying the dispute to not, you know, if someone brings a kind of an M&A dispute and you have no idea how M&As work or how to calculate them, you would have no mm. idea how to draft a submission on it. Mm. Also, also being at the same firm that there was a, a matter recently where uh, a potential dispute arose with an aviation client that we have and I you know I've been in that seat I've done similar right. transactions so I understand how it works so I was kind of explaining to the partner on the matter the disputes partner on the matter the transactions and the parties and things like that so in that sense it could be quite useful so then your training contract is finishing you're in your last seat and you kind of get a nod you get a tap on the shoulder it could just expire and you walk out the door and no one says anything it, again it depends on the firm and how okay. they work some firms are more formal some firms are less formal um but i don't, I don't think it would expire and you just walk out the door i think there's, like, thank the, you <laughs> thank you for your service <laughs> goodbye uh, no it it depends it depends on the firm and, and how they like to run the system but generally um there's an understanding of interest between the the, the trainee and, and the firm and, and where there are opportunities um some firms are more formal I think uh, I, I know some firms they do interviews so you have mm-hmm. to interview again and you're asked some like very technical questions to see whether or not and, and it may be the case that they, they don't pass the interview and then they'll that firm will look externally for someone to fill that vacancy Right. so there can be systems like that in place but it depends on the firm interesting well Joel do you have any outstanding questions for these two I have one for you if yeah. you were to do it again you can start from scratch and Ooh. pick your system of legal training would you prefer this? Would you have liked to be a, a UK trained lawyer instead of whatever you want to? <laughs> I think I would have liked to have this type of process and to be exposed to different things. But two things: one, the competition to get into these things—it just adds another layer of competition, right? It's not just getting your summer associateships, which we have to do in the US, but that has all changed after the crisis. Like the summer associate positions are not as abundant as they used to be and so it doesn't just like automatically feed in from your summer second summer associate to your job so now people it's now become a little bit of a wild west and getting jobs so i think it just adds it's a lot of competition and it's a lot of like red tape and hurdles to jump just to get a job the second thing is i had an opportunity at my last firm to do rotation so they allow you when you enter the firm that you do like a one-year rotation after two years so you go into a different um department the problem with that is it doesn't really work because a lot of your old cases like follow you and no one like actually lets you go 100%. Um, but I decided not to do it because I knew I was interested in arbitration. So why would I, why would I veer from that and lose like an hour, a year of uh, experience? I don't know. What, what do you think, Joel? Okay. Here, here. <laughs> arbitration is the best. Right, exactly. Um, well, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Joel, for a great season. Thank you. And uh, we will see everyone in season four. Well, that was fun learning about a new system. Yeah, I think you were right when you're touching on that. Uh, I mean, obviously you were because you were recounting an experience, but that Ollie was way more prepared than you were coming out of law school. <laughs> I always have this sense of inferiority talking to, to English-trained lawyers. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you, you, they sit down and they're the junior, but they, they know a lot about the law and about how it works to work at a law firm. So, 
Yeah. Uh, well, it's too late for us, but <laughs> good for them. <laughs> another career, another time. Well, well, what we do need is a more proper send-off, though. This is the last episode for, for quite some time. I'm guessing we won't record until after the summer when slash if we, we record more. So thank you for a third season. Thank you, Joel. I mean, this was the, a slower tempo since it was once every two weeks. Um, maybe people can chime in and let us know what they think about that. It's just difficult to get it out every week, but I think it works well, don't you? Yeah, I think so too. It was a good pace for us. And our listeners are, of course, very busy people who have things going on. So my, my uh, random, randomized impression, speaking to people and reading our emails, is that people enjoyed this. Let's see what happens in the future. But there's a summer in between, and uh, I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm assuming you're going to work because you're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, um, I will work. I'll be scavenging more topics for the podcast and lining up more interviews. Um, so hopefully we can and find new sponsors. If the iReporter will still have us, of course, but maybe find new sponsors. Um, so everybody keep emailing us, and Joel will still be active on the Twitter I will be watching Joel be active on our Twitter um, at the ARP station and email us, of course, at the arbitration station at gmail.com. We can cliffhang that we have already gotten some invites for some cool events um, in the fall. Um, so Yeah, we should make that work. That would be great. Take absolutely. the podcast on the road some more. Thank you to all those people named and unnamed who donated to our crowdfunding um, campaign at the at the outset of this season. Thanks also, of course, to IA Reporter and to Luke, to Luke Peterson, to our three editors or research assistants, rather, that helped us out. The and editor is Jan. Jan, Jan thank you, Jan. Yeah, running on the, the steam of Jan Kunster's uh, energy and competence. Absolutely. Um, we have a team. I mean, we have a little team over here and it's growing and I'm, I'm excited just as Joel likes to keep the international mystery behind it. Um, if and when we continue, um, hopefully it just gets bigger and bigger. I think the support that we've had thus far and the comments and input that we've had from everyone has been invaluable um, and it's been so helpful and it's been such an exciting ride so far. Yeah, now we've started to get emails from partners at law firms and names that we do recognize uh, telling us that they listen. And that, that scares me a little bit. So, we <laughs> so might far have to it's take been a break. positive feedback, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, okay, you run back into your office. Uh, I'll go back to mine and we will talk when we talk. Take care in the meantime. Take care, Joel. I'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Allegedly, though, I guess. Allegedly. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. There's no way to qualify unique. This is so interesting because... And my problem, Joel, is the following.